Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Newly re-elected for an historic third term as president of China, Xi Jinping made his first visit outside the country, and it was to Moscow. What has turned into an unbreakable alliance, an alliance based on many historic factors, but one very important contemporary one. An alliance based on the contemporary reality that the United States is gunning for both Russia and China, if necessary, at the same time. A tall order, you might think, for a country that can't produce clean drinking water for many of its citizens. A tall order for a country where many of the banks are beginning to tumble and the others being saved by historic Herculean tasks of quantitative easing, printing more and more dollars based on less and less material economic realities. A tall order for a country that had to slink out of Afghanistan like a thief in the night, beaten by men in sandals on bicycles, carrying Kalashnikovs strung across their shoulder. But there seems no end to the appetite for war in the United States. And it's bipartisan, with the exception of Donald Trump, who probably wants to fight just one of these adversaries rather than both at the same time. And in any case, as I speak, he still faces the threat of arrest. But the Republican and Democratic leadership in the U.S. Congress are absolutely united in maintaining a visceral hostility towards two of their competitors, one of them which happens to own a very great deal of United States debt, and one of them happens to be the place where so many of the commodities necessary for the working of European and North American capitalism are to be found. It is a tall order indeed. And so President Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow to Vladimir Putin, three whole days. Their first meeting took four and a half hours, tete-a-tete. Now, I've been around diplomacy and politics for very many decades, and that is a long meeting by anybody's standards. But they had so much to discuss on the economic level, no doubt on the military technical level, on the diplomatic level and on the political level. And it seems that the visit was an outstanding success. Certainly, if you judge it by the excitement it has created across the world, you would have to judge it a success. Now, some in the West will be surprised to hear me calling it exciting. But you have to know that we represent just 13% of the population of the world. 
This is a fact I never tire of making and pointing out, but have to because so much of our worldview is fixed upon the fallacious idea that we are the world. You'll remember that charity single, We Are the World, that they sang out in Britain and the United States, but we really are not. The United States is 4% of the population of the world. If you take the West as a whole, and only if you define places like Australia as being in the West, which is, of course, a defiance of geography itself. And only if you exclude the obvious fact that many, many millions of the people in the West are wholly against the conduct of their own political leaders. If you don't believe me, take a look at the footage from Paris. Oh, sorry, you can't because the Western broadcasters are not showing the fact that if there had been cameras around in 1789, that's what the French Revolution would have looked like if it had been televised. The Place de Concorde on fire. Tens, hundreds of thousands of French citizens in more or less permanent revolt against their president who's had to declare this evening that he will not be seeking another term as president. No wonder, because he would have no chance of even winning, even against the opponent that he fought last time. If you don't believe me, you haven't been paying attention to the wave of strikes and demonstrations throughout the European continent, including in the United Kingdom itself. More people have been on strike for more days in the United Kingdom in the past 12 months than for the past 30 years. And many of those strikes are proving to be winners and the workers being offered multiples of the money they turned down at the beginning. And the British parliamentary system is in chaos. As I mentioned right at the top, Boris Johnson has spent the day in front of a kangaroo court. Now, of course, I dislike Boris Johnson viscerally. I dislike he's a political enemy of mine. But I've been in front of kangaroo courts before. I know what they look like. And the idea that the former Prime Minister of Britain should be on trial, a trial being staged by his political enemies, and I don't mean the opposition, I mean his Conservative Party, enemies, the people who ousted him from power, plus the opposition, have put him on trial all day. And what an unedifying sight it was. Some of the most petty-fogging detail. One question was, your diary doesn't show where you were on a certain date and in a window of something like 20 minutes, two years ago. Do you recall where you were? I don't know what Boris Johnson's answer was. I know what mine would have been. I couldn't account for my whereabouts in a 20-minute window last week, never mind two years ago. But the fact that the British political system is putting on trial its former prime minister over birthday parties, over cake, over wine during the pandemic is symptomatic of a much wider and deeper problem. I think Boris Johnson should be on trial in a real court for his handling of the pandemic. 
I think Boris Johnson should be on trial, perhaps in front of the International Criminal Court, for having wrecked the possible peace deal between Russia and Ukraine nearly 10 months ago, emerging out of the peace process in Turkey, Joe Biden dispatched Boris Johnson to order President Zelensky of Ukraine not to sign any peace agreement when he may very well have been minded to. That means, if you think about it, the blood of every person who has died in that 10 months is on the people that scuppered the potential peace deal. I could make that case in front of the International Criminal Court, and I'm not even a lawyer. Boris Johnson and his government are responsible for the loss of public money running into tens of billions on their track and trace, on their procurement uh, projects and contracts, which were handed out to cronies and family members and party donors for clearly inferior material that didn't even work. One of them, a conservative peeress, Baroness Moan, has literally yachted off to the Algarve where she's living in hiding, essentially, from British justice, unable to be questioned by British police for what turns out to be the alleged theft of up to 30 million pounds in bogus procurement contracts. Bogus in the sense that she formed a company that had never performed that kind of task before, was paid a very large amount of money for it, and the taxpayer was cheated in terms of the value of the project. So we've got a member of the House of Lords hiding in the Algarve. We've got perhaps the best part of a hundred billion pounds wasted by the Conservative government, and they're quizzing Boris Johnson over birthday cake or whether he had a glass of wine in the Whitehall offices of the Prime Minister. Then there's the whole issue of whether they handled the pandemic in the right way to begin with. So I'm not here defending Boris Johnson. I'm just saying that what is happening to him is symptomatic of the malaise, like the problem of Macron, of the Western democracies, a point to which I shall turn in just a minute. But perhaps the most dramatic is the threat to arrest Donald Trump. There has never in the entire history, not just of the United States of America, but any major Western power, been the distinct probability of the last occupant of this, the most powerful office in the world, being arrested, handcuffed, fingerprinted, made to do the perp walk, in front of the courtroom in downtown Manhattan. Why is it happening? Not because he described hush money to a hooker that he once had an affair with as legal fees. Can't be that because Hillary Clinton did exactly that in the money that she spent on the steel dossier which launched the whole Russiagate hoax. She put it down as legal expenses but it was actually payment for a dossier full of lies, falsehoods, misrepresentations. 
It's not really about the money he paid to Stormy Daniels. Come on. Neither is it about what documents he took home to Mar-a-Lago from the White House. It can't be, because all the presidents of the United States take home their work for their memoirs or, I don't know, maybe to use it against future occupants of their office. But all of them have done it. The reason they have put, or are threatening to put, Donald Trump under arrest is because they are afraid that he's going to defeat them again in 2024. He should think himself lucky that he's not being terminated with the extreme prejudice that President John F. Kennedy. Maybe that lies in the future. The fact is, they know that there's a very real possibility that Trump, having been the last president, might also be the next one. And the difference between Trump and them is that he exposes what they really are, how they really work, his vainglory and his bluster, is vulgar. But it's nonetheless an authentic expression of American exceptionalism, of manifest destiny. It is an authentic expression of the extent to which America believes not only that it rules the world, but that it deserves to and intends to continue to. Now, President Xi Jinping said some very important things in the last few days. One of the most important was on the subject of democracy. The Chinese have developed uh, a new phrase, whole process democracy. I've been listening to it today at the conference I'm attending. It is actually quite a persuasive set of ideas. It makes the point that democracy cannot just be about form. It must also be about content. We in the West have a rococo form of democracy. In America, they elect even the local dog catcher, the sheriff, the judge, local representatives, regional representatives, national representatives, right up to the president. But what difference does it make? Two cheeks of the same backside are running for office. The Democrats and the Republicans are two sides of the same coin. You're not allowed to run for office in the United States unless you can raise vast sums of money. For president, last time, almost $2 billion, billion dollars to run for president. But if you are outside of the boundaries of the prevailing orthodoxy, you will be destroyed. Even if you sometimes look and sound like you are, like Trump, you will be destroyed. Even if you are the candidate of one of these two cheeks of the same backside. We have in Britain parliaments and assemblies and councils and, and uh, select committees and all the rest. But what difference does it make? You cannot change things. We haven't been able to change things. We live exactly the same way, deteriorating, degenerating, in every important respect, as we did 40, 50 years ago. As a matter of fact, we're poorer than we were then. When my parents sent me off to school, they did so confidently in the expectation that I would have a better life than they had. But I cannot say that about my children.
that I send to school now, and neither can you. Nothing changes. And if, like Jeremy Corbyn, briefly the leader of the opposition, you might just change things, then again you are destroyed. The reality is, in China, you might not be able to change the party, but you can definitely change the policy. I'm here now in Beijing for the first time in 25 years. Trust me, the policy is unrecognizable today from 25 years ago. It's even more unrecognizable from what it was when I first entered parliament, or entered politics rather, 50 years ago. Politics is a mass participation business in China. There is a constant ferment of ideas and argument and decisions are made that really change things. So if democracy is government of the people, for the people, by the people, who can say really in Western countries that they have genuinely a democracy? They have the form, but the democracy is devoid of content. There was a very great series from a book written by a friend of mine, a conservative lord, Lord Dobb, called House of Cards. It was made into an American television serial, which I studied avidly for years. And in that series, President Francis Urquhart once turned sotto voce to the camera and said, democracy, it's so overrated. Our democracy is so overrated. As President Xi Jinping said, no system of governance is universal. No nation is superior to another, and no single country can dictate the course of world events. If that wasn't true and obvious before this week, it surely is now. I'm joined, as I said, by a distinguished panel of guests. Let me turn to the first of those now. Professor Jay Tao, you are a professor of international relations and diplomacy at the University of Beijing, very important post. You no doubt have been studying the events of uh, the last few days even more closely than me. What's your analysis of what happened and its significance? You mean between uh, the meeting between President Xi Jinping I and the president, uh, Vladimir Putin. Yes. Yeah. This is a, a, you know, like you said, it's a historical mission on the part of the Chinese government to try to, you know, foster peace in that region. And I understand that, you know, many Western governments have been very critical of the Chinese government for, in their view, not doing enough to promote peace and stability. But as the president said, you know, uh, again and again, also the uh, spokesperson for the Chinese Minister of Foreign Affairs, that the Chinese government has always, you know, adhered to its own principles, and the Chinese government followed the uh, spirit of the UN Charter. And so you look at, uh, you know, their meeting. You said like four and a half hours, and they had a joint declaration after their, um, you know, meeting. So everything looks like, you know, people are getting very hopeful that the Chinese efforts to broker peace between Russia and Ukraine 
will probably very soon bear fruits. And so I would say, you know, that's a very important mission, and it's been very closely watched in the West as well as in China too. Well, this would follow the mm -hmm. historic uh, role that Beijing played mm -hmm. in brokering a mm -hmm. new beginning between Saudi Arabia and Absolutely. Iran. Mm -hmm. That would begin to make China mm -hmm. look like the go-to place for resolving international conflicts. Mm -hmm. Ordinarily, that would be a matter of some rejoicing, but it hasn't been received that way in Western capitals. No, no, no. Why not? Well, like you said, you know, because uh, China for a long time was not viewed by the West in a favorable light. And so from the point of view of D.C., I think they think, you know, we have been the superpower after the uh, collapse of the Union. And so we are the center of the world. We are the sought after place for peace, for prosperity, for peace, uh, you know, take you know, peacemaking commissions and others, you know. So now I think, you know, they're becoming kind of a jealous, let me use that word, that, you know, we used to be at the center stage and we are in the, you know, spotlight. But now the Chinese government has taken that effort to go there and broker peace. So kind of like in the United States has been sidelined. So you are used to, to being looked up upon as a model, as, as somebody who's been contributing so much to the world, right? But then now you look like, oh, people are you know, actually looking at another country that is being very confident and very innovative, I would say, in bringing some of these uh, historically you know, um, you know, staunch you know, our arch enemies to, uh, together, like you mentioned, Saudi Arabia and Iran, right? So I think, you know, that's why this has not, not been very well received in the West. It's a, it's, it's a strong feeling of suspicion, a very strong feeling of resentment. Like, Green cheese, we right, call it. Right? Jealousy. Right? Much more of this <laughs> after this very short break. Stay with me. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're live in Beijing in the People's Republic of China talking about everything from the caning that Boris Johnson took today in the House of Commons, the handcuffing that Donald Trump might even be getting as I speak. I have no idea what's happening since I sat down in the studio. Do tell me if he has been huckled, as we say, in Glasgow and thrown into the back of a Black Mariah police van. Who knows? Anything can happen. Paris is on fire. The president has announced that he's bowing out of politics. Anything 
could happen in Western countries. By comparison, China is a positive oasis of calm and stability. But will the Ukraine be? We're talking, of course, about the visit of Xi Jinping to Moscow and the Chinese peace proposals to bring about an end to the fighting there. And we have a poll that's running on my Twitter feed, on this YouTube channel, on my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway, or on the YouTube community panel. Uh, 11,182 votes are in already, and the show has just begun. The question is simple. Will the Putin-G summit lead to peace in Ukraine? It's a binary question. Yes or no? A, yes. B, no. Professor, uh, before the break, uh, we were talking about the negative reaction, the, the jealous, suspicious reaction uh, that uh, Western leaders have expressed about the summit. Mm -hmm. Is that what is reflected in public opinion, do you think? Not that public opinion will decide whether the war ends or not, uh, but from my initial uh, look at the results of our polls so far, two-thirds of the people don't think it will lead to peace. Do mm. you think it might? Well, I'm hopeful. Uh, number one, uh, you mentioned, and I mentioned too, that you know, there's already this uh, you know, historical precedent that is unprecedented you know, from our side and also from the world side. That is, uh, China brokered the peace between Saudi Arabia and Iran, right? So that you, you have already a precedent. Second, you know, you have Chinese government has a strong record of contributing to uh, UN-led peacekeeping missions around the world. And third, you look at, you know, China's relationship with Russia. It's a very unusual partnership. We don't use the word alliance, unlike, you know, NATO and others, right? But it's something that is even more closer, intimate, more trust between the two partners than sometimes you would see between the allies, let's say, in the NATO. And so I think, you know, given their trust, given their, you know, long-time friendship, I think it's a very likely, I would use the word, uh, better chance than possible that there something positive, something substantive would happen perhaps in a few days or a few weeks. So let's see. Yeah. Professor, I know Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. and Iran yeah. extremely intimately <laughs> over many decades. And I've got to tell you, if I could hand you a Nobel Peace Prize right now to China for brokering that deal, I, I mean, I nearly fell off my chair when I saw how you had... I was shocked too, you know, when I woke up in the morning. Extraordinary uh, achievement. Mm. Uh, and even more extraordinary that it has, it's been virtually ignored in Western media, like it never happened. Mm -hmm. Even though Iran is one of our primary adversaries and Saudi Arabia one of our primary allies. Mm. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, the fruits of it uh, will be felt not just between these two great regional powers themselves, mm -hmm. but across all manner of conflicts from the Yemen Mm -hmm. uh, to Lebanon, it's uh, extraordinary. Let's get an American perspective, albeit an American in Beijing. Lee Camp, uh, the regular guest on the show, writer, comedian, analyst, orator, raconteur, <laughs> a man for all seasons. Uh, who, like me, is uh, suffering from a lack of sleep, <laughs> but 
yeah. intensely interested in what's going on here. The, the, I don't know the American media's response, but if it's anything like the British media's response, it will be hysterically negative to the summit in Moscow. Right. What's your take? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, George. I realize I've got to come to Beijing to actually see you in person, so this is this is exciting. But uh, yeah, no, I did see some of the coverage before I before I left the the states to come here, and of course, incredibly negative. And I'll actually one up what the fine professor said. I think it goes beyond jealousy. It goes into the U.S. views this as as an existential threat. The China and Russia uh, working together, and the the U.S. our ruling elite, our ruling vampires. Uh, think that no country should exist on this earth that is not subservient to the U.S. And, you know, in a, in a kind of more specific sense, they view it as a threat to the petrodollar, a threat, a threat to the, the global reserve currency. And so they don't want to see peace. There are many places around the world that they absolutely don't want to see peace. One is Ukraine. Uh, another is Syria. And uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia is another one. And the U.S., if there is going to be peace in these places, the U.S. wants to be the one to say, we decided there will be peace there. And so I, I think the, the U.S. views this as, as an existential threat. And, of course, all the coverage has been negative. And it's like when, when the U.S. meets with someone, it's because the U.S., it, it's a wonderful thing. And the U.S. has decided that we will impart our wisdom upon them. But when other countries meet together, it's like, the, you know, the, the dark Siths in Star Wars have come together. How dare someone meet with this country that's an adversary of ours? Uh, like, they're, like people are immediately corrupted. You remember when, when Trump met with Putin, the U.S. The liberal side of the U.S. media acted like, oh, well, the moment he speaks to him, his brain will be warped by the evil Putin, you know, and it's like diplomacy is the only thing that has ever created any peace, any stability in this world. We need diplomacy everywhere. Well, I mean, when he met even more, when Trump met uh, uh, Kim Jong-un, the North Korean right. leader, right. I mean, they almost uh, went into a paroxysm of uh, <laughs> a, a, a fit uh, over that. And yet, how else are you going to get right. peace? How right. else are you going to end conflicts? As, as if I not by that. As I recall, the end of World War II also involved Stalin, Churchill, and FDR sitting down. Exactly. But apparently, nowadays, we view sitting down and talking peace as something that must be stopped. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, you know, Boris Johnson was sent in uh, as an emissary of the United States to shut down that peace deal that could have stopped a year of bloodshed, a exactly. year of Ukrainians How and many millions of refugees. would still be alive today? Yeah if that had not been done. It's a very, very serious charge. Um, but they've abandoned their window dressing uh, to some extent, I think, this week. Uh, just in advance of President Xi arriving in Moscow, the American uh, press spokesman, Kirby, I think his name is, he said a ceasefire would be unacceptable. Now. If ever there was any pretense that this is a proxy war, it's abandoned by that kind of a statement. Because what if Ukraine wanted a ceasefire? The US has just declared it unacceptable. The word unacceptable was used. So in a sense, events are moving at such a pace that they're having to uh, abandon any pretense of seeking an end to this war. They actually want this war to continue.
don't they? Yeah, and, and even, you know, you mentioned how they've pretended it's not a proxy war, but many, there, there are many examples piecemeal of top U.S. officials calling it a proxy war. Even former CIA head Leon Panetta said in an interview, this is a proxy war whether we call it that or not, and we can't lose it. So the admission of this being a proxy war is there. Uh, to, to give a little bit of hope to the fact that there could be some peace months down the road, uh, you know, the RAND report w was leaked, uh, uh, you know, higher United States think tank that makes a lot of the U.S. policy decisions. And it said basically that the U.S. has kind of gotten some of what they wanted from this proxy war. What they haven't gotten from this proxy war, which is the boomeranging of sanctions and things like that, isn't going to happen. The sanctions are not going to crush Russia. Putin's not going to leave office. The, the stuff that they wanted to get that hasn't happened is not going to happen. So in a way that dragging this out actually could be detrimental to the United States. And I think we have seen some very little test balloons uh, of the U.S. saying things like uh, saying things to Zelensky, like we you need to make great gains in this next month, because after that, we're not sure about whether we can keep funding and arming this thing, which is these slight comments that that hint that the U.S. may be ready to allow this to wrap up, which wh why should it even be up to the U.S.? The U.S. shouldn't be dictating these things. But the next guest, I can safely say, is one of the most popular guests ever on the mother of all talk shows. <laughs> and I had to come to Beijing to see her in person. Li Jingjing, commentator, journalist, television star. Welcome in person to the mother of all talk shows. I assume you share uh, the optimism uh, about the summit. Speak to, if you will, how the Chinese people see it. Are they deeply interested? Are they proud? Do they see their country now in an even brighter light than they did before, now that it's moved beyond? I mean, next year, China will become a high-income economy. Uh, which, considering what it was in 1949, one of the ten poorest countries in the world, to go to being one of the high-income economies, which only around, I think, 10, 12 percent of the people of the world live in high-income economies, is a tremendous achievement. But now it seems China has embarked upon an international role that is finally beginning to emerge as really historically significant. Do the Chinese people know that? Yeah. So first, thank you so much, Jordan, for the kind introduction. No, I'm, I'm so happy that I can be on Moats again, again, in person with exactly. you in Beijing. How right. awesome is this? Exactly. So happy to be with all of you. And to our question, first, you mentioned about the China's peaceful role in this on the international stage. Um, I think most Chinese people are very aware of this and they are so happy about this uh, because I mean, to, to, to bring Saudi Arabia and Iran, this two arch enemy to, to shake hands. I mean, everybody in the world should be happy about this. So, so they know the role. I mean, this is a demonstration of the role that China wants to play in the world. We want to. We want peace because I think as China rise, the Western several Western media or countries they keep portraying China. Well, if China succeed, if they're gonna be the number one, they're gonna be the next empire. They're gonna dominate you. They're gonna colonize you. They have no difference from 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 us. But I think this is perfect example 
No, China is not. In our traditional culture, in Chinese people's mindset, in our wars and conflicts and colonization is never the way we, we do things. And a few months ago, I interviewed an a African scholar, and he, he said, we can trace the history that the first um, explorer from China landed in the African continent uh, 1,500 years ago. They landed and they went back. They didn't dominate their place. And uh, 100 years later, they come to work with us. So still, we work closely. Never for once, they colonize us. I think the same for the official from Indonesia. So we work with uh, China for 2,000 years. Uh, they never colonize us. We work with uh, the Europe for 200 years. They colonize us. So that difference. And this deal, peace deal, is a perfect example. And you see, they are two branches of Islam. They have so many differences. They fight for such a long time, but they are mediated by China. And I think that's a huge blow to U.S., to the West, who spend so much money on funding the separatists to, to spread the disinformation that there's no freedom of, of, um, for Muslims in China. I think one purpose for that, not only to dislabelize China, but also to try, try to drive a wedge between China and Arab states and Muslim countries. But apparently, Muslim countries are not believing that. We're, we're to, we think they come to Xinjiang, they come to China, see, well, it's fine. Well, they come to China to resolve their conflicts evidently. Yeah, exactly. uh, it is the first day of Ramadan today uh, or just dawning here in China. Next few hours Ramadan will begin uh, in, in Western uh, countries. This has been one of the most persistent lies of Western propaganda that China is somehow uh, hostile to Islam, hostile to Muslims. As a matter of fact, I uh, was outside a mosque today in Beijing, never mind in Xinjiang where there's a big Muslim population. But it's been a quite a successful lie uh, in the public opinion, not amongst uh, Muslim governments. They have almost all publicly declared that this uh, Uyghur question is a hoax, it's deliberate disinformation. It's the opposite of the truth, but I can tell you from my own contact with Muslims, certainly in Britain, it's quite widely believed. Now, you have done a lot of work on this subject. I've seen your uh, reports uh, from it. The truth is, there are, there are more mosques in Xinjiang than there is in the whole of the United States and the European Union put together. <laughs> the population, far from there being a genocide, the population of the Uyghurs is growing faster than any other part mm -hmm. of the Chinese population. And the living standards uh, of the ethnic minorities in China is growing faster than any other part of the uh, population. Just briefly, if you would summarize the, the, the extent to which this is a false story. Yeah. So maybe take a very recent news. I believe this never being shown on, on Western mainstream media because just a few months ago, a delegation of Muslim leaders, Muslim figures from several major Muslim countries visited Xinjiang 
and the leader of the international, I forgot the official name, but the leader of the in world international Muslim community issued an announcement. Mm -hmm. They praised China's method to fight against terrorism in Xinjiang. And this, they, they, it's, a, it's a very long one. I retweeted before, but I, I will retweet again on my Twitter after this show to let you see it. So in the announcement, they were praised. They saw the diversity in Xinjiang. They saw that Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities are not being uh, oppressed. They saw what China is doing against uh, fighting against extremism. They think it's reasonable. So and they they meet everybody in Xinjiang in China. So if Muslim we're all fighting against extremism, yeah, huh? um, the uh, other countries send cruise missiles and uh, bombs and <laughs> make war on uh, on Muslim countries. China's fight against extremism and and separatism has been successful, unlike the Western policy of invading and occupying and and bombing. Uh, I look forward to reading that uh, from you uh, after the show. Professor, uh, I've put it this way in the past, that there's a, a hellish orchestra out there ready to play hostile songs against China. Sometimes the conductor chooses Taiwan, sometimes he chooses Tibet, sometimes he chooses the Uyghurs, sometimes it's Huawei, sometimes it's TikTok. Sometimes it's our refrigerators which are spying on us. Uh, they, they go across the orchestra and one never knows which tune uh, will play most uh, in any one week, month, period. Uh, but we know that the orchestra is out there. Balloons. Don't forget balloons. <laughs> yes. Balloons. How could I have forgotten <laughs> these hellish balloons that you sent over? United States, <laughs> and that they had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to shoot down mm. with their sidewinder. But the latest news from the US is a whole raft of new tech sanctions. Mm. It seems they are absolutely determined mm. to... Actually, let me put it another way. It seems they've concluded that they cannot beat China in competition. China is just better at capitalism than them. Uh, and therefore, they have to rip up all their supposed beliefs in free trade and free enterprise and so on. These are blatantly protectionist measures that they are introducing. How will China cope with that? Well, this is a very hard, especially for companies involved in these uh, fights. Like you mentioned, TikTok. You mentioned, you know, way back in the starting with the ZTE, you know, Huawei, and many of these companies have been sanctioned by U.S. Uh, Department of Commerce, right? Entity list. Uh, this is, uh, you know, I study U.S. politics. I stayed in Chicago for six years, so I think this is a strike me as kind of a degeneration of American capitalism. Now, if something happens similar happens here in China, that the Chinese government say something or do something to, say, American company, Microsoft or Google. Now, American government say, what about intellectual property rights? You know, this is a business environment. And so uh, innovation, uh, ownership, property, private property, right? Because these are business companies. And so this is now happening to Chinese companies in a country that is supposed to be the world's freest economy. 
the country that supposedly offers the world's best protection of uh, intellectual property rights. And so now TikTok, for example, is being forced, like you said, a real chance that this company has to be sold to an American company. Otherwise, TikTok has to close its shop in the United States and lose about 150 million users, right? This, this struck me as this is not America. This is not capitalist. This is like you know, a national security paranoia. Like, like Americans are getting very unsure about what they are doing. They want to outcompete China, but like you said, they can't beat China on this uh, you know, you know, technological innovation. And so they say, we're going to confiscate the Chinese company. And that's outrageous in a country where you're supposed to have this uh, sanctity of private property. Well, that's all just lipstick on the pig. <laughs> it's about hegemony. <laughs> a quick break. I'll be right back. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Never mind Moats Berlin, never mind Moats America. This is Moats Beijing for one night only, but nonetheless an extraordinary feat. And I'm very grateful to everyone who's made that possible. Lee Camp, uh, you and I are, I was going to say talking tomorrow, but we're actually talking in a few hours. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so don't even dream of going to bed. Uh, you had uh, a, an even more difficult journey than mine to get here, uh, traveling through several uh, countries. But you will be, I know, uh, looking forward to the speech you're going to give on democracy. What did you think of my opening point? That whilst we have the form of democracy, it's actually devoid of content. I mean, a democracy where, at the cost of billions of dollars, you get to choose between Joe Biden and Donald Trump <laughs> is not exactly the best advertisement for democracy, is it? No, absolutely not. Two corporate, uh, multimillionaire and billionaire, uh, racist, at least in policy, if maybe not always in statements, uh, both of them with... Uh, legitimate sexual assault allegations against them. That was a lovely choice we got in the U.S. <laughs> um, no, you're, you're absolutely right that we claim to have democracy, but at every level you can see that it has been corrupted, if it was ever fair, but it has been incredibly corrupted. It has been bought out. A large Princeton study showed that the American people never get something through Congress that does not already align with corporate interests ever zero percent impact on congress if it doesn't align with corporate interests uh the the you mentioned a two billion dollars per candidate i think the total spent in the midterms was something around 16 billion oh. uh the in the senate elections yes and, 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 and uh, house and house 16 uh it, it, it 16 billion dollars uh the one one donor this is back during trump's run one donor spent as much on Trump's election as the entire Labor Party spent during their general election wow. on their race. It is insane amounts of money, and you're absolutely right that, that if someone can't raise that amount of money, they're not going to compete, and if they're not going to compete, then that, that it erases 
anyone who is not in the top echelon of American society in terms of wealth accumulation or those people they know. So it is, it, we pretend to not be ruled like an oligarchy. In fact, if you look up oligarchy in the dictionary, it will say ruled by an elite business class and then it puts in parentheses, especially Russia as if it doesn't take place in the United States. We are an oligarchy. We are ruled by an elite business class, and a democracy has been thrown out the window. It is uh, extraordinary, though, the level of self-delusion. There are a large number of your fellow citizens and mine yeah. who genuinely believe that our system is superior to other systems. They're entitled to believe that if they like. I, I have no problem with deluded people. Uh, <laughs> My problem is when they want to export that to everybody else, when they want to dictate that to everyone else, when they want to punish everyone else for not being like them. That's what makes it... You see, there was a time, I'm, I'm so old, I remember when most people wanted to be an American. You remember the song from West Side Story, I Want to Be an American? Most people did. They looked at Hollywood, they looked at the television, uh, they thought this was as good as it gets. But look at the distance that's been traveled backwards since then, since from Jack Kennedy to Joe Biden. Kind of sums it up, no? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. People, because America was viewed as this place where the class structure was not entrenched. You could move up if you just worked hard enough. And that does not exist almost at all anymore in the United States. People are struggling. 64% of Americans say they have trouble paying for basic necessities. They don't know when a healthcare emergency is going to destroy any savings they have, sure. any life they had planned. The, the banks are, of course, you know, uh, predatory with the, the ver their various uh, ways of kicking people out of their homes. And people, America is the top exporter of paid blood donations. It is like literal vampiric state. Over 2% of America's exports is blood because poor Americans are donating their blood for, blood for $30 to try and afford to eat. Uh, it, it, it has truly become a vampiric system that has now already sucked out the labor, sucked out the resources, and is now sucking out the literal living life fluids inside people to ship overseas for a profit. I, even I didn't know that, and I'm glad that an American said it uh, rather than me. It is more and more clear, isn't it, Li Jingjing, that um, China's on the way up and the rest are on the way down. I take no pleasure in saying that. I know that the sun rises in the east, but it didn't need to set in the west. We could have had two suns uh, if the west had been prepared to come alongside China uh, and mutually benefit uh, from trade and development with China, we could all have enjoyed the sunshine. Um, tell us in the last few minutes what you mean by whole process democracy, because mm. it's a phrase that most of our viewers will not have heard before. Mm. I will try to make it short. The term is actually whole process people's democracy. So what China is doing is try to involve the massive number of people to in the policy making and decision making process. And I can take the example that just happened in early March, which is the two sessions. I covered it as a journalist. Two, sh two sessions is two meetings between 
it's a very fundamental institutional guarantee for China's political system. It's the uh, National People's Congress and uh, Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. These two together called two sessions. So during this meeting every year, deputies and members to these two sessions come from all around China. Every region, every ethnic groups, every sectors come together to to, to, to make decisions, to legislate, to vote, elect uh, government officials, uh, to, 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 to give their proposals to the central government. Uh, and even before the National People's Congress, the Congresses from local level, from township, county, city, provincial, all took place before that to make sure opinions, suggestions, advice, proposal can raise from the bottom to up, gradually to the central level, to the national level. And at the national level, everybody will discuss, review what should be taken into place, what should, should be put into the law. So I, I, for example, uh, some may wonder, are those deputies actually making a difference to the country? I interviewed one, uh, one teacher who, is a, who works in a rural area in Shandong province. Her job was, her, her goal for her life is to improve the rural education system. So uh, in the past 15 years, being as a deputy for the National People's Congress, she made 240 proposals on different subjects. Half of them have, have already been implemented into law. Some were incorporated into criminal law, some incorporated into provincial laws. And in the past, past 15 years, her opinions uh, improved from improving infrastructures of the schools in rural regions to uh, 10 years ago to improve, in, uh, in, to, to recruit more qualified teachers, to recruit music teachers, art teachers, and uh, PE teachers. To nowadays, she wants to improve the, uh, give psychological consultations for, for, for students. So from the different proposals she proposed in the past few years, you can see the development of education in rural regions. So those people are actually making uh, changes, are shaping this country. They are making, they represent their group of people, their province, and bring the problems and uh, whatever in their region gradually to the central level to be solved. So that's why you can see the pr improvement in China in the past 40 years, how it can change so dramatically if, it's, if China is like what a Western country said, it's just one party do dominates everything, dictates everything. Can, if it's so, can really we see the changes, yeah. right? 800 million people have been lifted out of poverty in China over those last 40 years. Just think about that number. Now, uh, I, and Gayatri took a walk in the Forbidden City just the other day. You'll be astounded at the beauty that we found there. Take a look at this. Here I am surrounded by thousands and thousands of years of Chinese civilization, which kind of puts into perspective the lectures on civilizational behaviors from a country founded in 1776, founded on the genocide of the original inhabitants and built on the labor of millions of black African slaves. Having then subjugated them, they fought a civil war amongst themselves which cost the casualties of more people than have died in all of the subsequent wars 
that the United States has been involved in. I'm talking about the First World War, the Second World War, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, all the wars America has fought. Fewer people died in those wars than died in the American Civil War. So I'm not sure the United States is the best country to lecture an ancient civilization like China on how they should be behaving, should be lecturing China on law, lecturing China on the order, the so-called rules-based order that they invented, which actually means the US makes the rules and gives the orders to everyone else. Well, the days when China accepted orders from foreigners is long gone. As we look around the forbidden city here at the treasure of Chinese civilization, and as we look at President Xi Jinping now in Moscow meeting with President Putin, reorganizing the world really, showing that the age of unipolar power is well and truly over. And American exceptionalism, American exceptionalism, you really are having a laugh. I'll be talking about democracy a lot this week on the show on Wednesday and at the conference I'm here in Beijing to attend. Abraham Lincoln, universally regarded as the best American president, defined democracy thus. He said that democracy was government of the people, by the people, for the people. Is anyone going to claim that that's what American democracy is? Is it of the people, where you need to raise a billion and a half dollars to even be in with a fighting chance to be the president? And where so sclerotic is the system that the choice is between <laughs> Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Is that the acme of democracy? America is a country where you can't find clean water. The whole length of the River Ohio. You can't find clean water for the last 15 years in Flint, Michigan where 80 million people don't have health care, where mass poverty is everywhere. Does democracy give you a right to a job? Not in America, it doesn't. Does democracy give you a right to a house? Not in America or in many Western countries, it doesn't. Does democracy give you a right to decent health care? Definitely not in America and increasingly not in the countries of Europe, whose economies are being driven into the ground by the lunatics who've taken control of the asylum. So if you'll excuse me, I'm going to continue my tour looking at the priceless treasures over tens of thousands of years of the great people of China. China is, of course, wholly transformed by the Chinese Revolution, 
as Chairman Mao said, just a few hundred yards from here. In 1949, the Chinese people have stood up. They've stood up all right, and they ain't going to sit down again. They're already the world's greatest manufacturing power. And before very long, they'll be the most powerful, richest economy in the world. Here's something you may not know. The average Chinese citizen is now richer than the average European citizen. You know, when I was a kid, your mother would tell you to eat up. They're starving in China. It's us that's starving now. And in China, they're going from strength to strength. If you ever get the chance to visit Beijing, the Forbidden City, it is one of the wonders of the world. It is the Colosseum. It is the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It is the Ziggurat at Ur. It is one of the great wonders of the world. And you can spend hours walking around it and touring the various palaces within it. Really stupendous experience. Uh, the poll, will the Putin G summit lead to peace in Ukraine? 13,419 people have voted. You can still get your vote in on Twitter, on YouTube, on YouTube community, and on my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway. The votes so far on Twitter, will the Putin G summit lead to peace in Ukraine? Yes, 32%, no, 68%. On YouTube, yes, 39%, no, 61%. On Telegram, yes, 28%, no, 72%. And on the community poll, yes, 32%, and no, 68%. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Trevelyan Gale says, nice shout, Lee. You're one of the last John the Baptists shouting in the wilderness. Except increasingly, Trevelyan, it isn't actually the wilderness. Last week, 1.24 million people watched the mother of all talk shows throughout the Anglosphere. If that's a wilderness, there's a lot of us in it. Now, let's go, as if to make my point, to Australia, to Bruce in Adelaide on the Russia-China deal. Bruce, welcome. Welcome. Nice to speak to you, George. My last trip into Beijing, I had the privilege of going through the Forbidden City like you did, and, I, and the, the Premier of China and the Premier of India were both walking up the middle of the uh, Forbidden City together. It was 2010. It was a wow. wonderful experience. Wow. And I hope you're enjoying the beautiful, yeah, must have been. Uh, lovely, astonishing uh, things that the... The government of China, which is all about putting the people of the apex at the top uh, in their long-term goals. I had 11 or 12 days in Tibet, and I'd love to get out to Xinjiang, but 
those people out there have got a real life, they're being educated, they're all going to school, and that's the an infrastructure, let alone China's noble, um, the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, which is to bring every country in the world, if possible, out of out of poverty. The Chinese are involved there with joint projects and they're obtaining development loans for all forms of reasons. There might be minerals, roads, education, water, the, the whole the whole lot. Um, and you also have to remember in the defence budget of every year of America, there's $320 million which is put aside for confrontation and disruption around the world in relation to the Built and Road initiatives. Now, during the week, we had uh, our last Prime Minister, uh, Paul Keating, and I suggest everyone throw that up on the YouTube screen. He was talking in relation to uh, us buying our submarines. Like we had the opportunity to buy submarines from France for 40 billion dollars and we end up paying 368 billion dollars talk about walking into a, a a corner shop and buying a red raspberry and coming out with an all-day sucker but um what i mainly rang about uh <laughs> and you won't even get already, the is, you won't get the submarines bruce you won't even get the submarines uh, until okay. you and i are both long dead there's decades, decades I, before I, you get these submarines. I, I hope so, George. I've got a few other things I just want to bring to your attention. Um, number one, today, uh, listening to Dr. Olu, I think his name is, uh, in uh, political trends, um, that um, the Chinese... It's not the development bank. One of the Chinese development banks and Saudi Arabia have signed a major um, amount of a loan from China to Arabia, Saudi Arabia, in relation to one of their development projects. Uh, also, coming out of the uh, your um, the recent between Putin and um, and, and Xi. Um, Russia will no longer use the Swiss system at all for doing anything. Uh, and the other thing is that the when those two got together this time, they were signing the world's biggest trade agreement by far. It, it, it surpasses any other previously large trade agreement by a huge amount, apparently. It, it's, it will be the, the biggest century... Well, uh, look, the plates have well and truly, the plates have well and truly shifted. I just want to ask you uh, quickly: China is Australia's biggest trading partner. So why, why, why is there such visceral hostility in the Australian media and amongst most of its political class? Uh, Keating, notwithstanding, very powerful statements he made, very, very powerful. But the rest of the politicos, and it seems to me all of the media, they seem to be spoiling for a fight with a country on which the Australian economy depends. You think the Yankees are going to bail Australia out? No, no, the Yankees think of themselves only. When it comes to the crunch, they'll run you under the rug. But... Um... 
Uh, Australia's economy has probably dropped by about 30 to 40 percent with the loss of iron ore exports. And uh, in, during 19, 2022, of course, there's a, about eight large ports on the African coast um, which have just been opened up. And that will be also taking iron ore, we like China, will be taking iron ore from some of these ports back into their into China itself. There's uh, also a big dam going across the Congo River in the Congo, the permanent of Congo, built by um, Newcrest Mining. And I do know that uh, with the mining of the iron ore, which is slightly above the grade of Australia, that they'll be mining that and pelletising it using the power from this dam going across the river uh, and then exporting that into China. But... Um, I ha it's nice to see you, George, on the television. Well, I hope you, you enjoy, uh, Yeah, no, well, you've said plenty. Uh, you've said plenty and very powerfully, Bruce, in Adelaide, in Australia. Australia fair, uh, but not when it comes to uh, relations with China. Now, uh, I did make the point to you the other day that one of our biggest success stories is our audience growth on Rumble. Uh, so... Uh, Please, if you get the chance, download the, the Rumble, because who knows, it might end up the only place you'll be able to find us. Rumbling on is the mother of all talk shows. Now, the, I think the youngest, certainly one of the youngest elected officials in Britain, as well as one of the livest wires you're going to find in British politics, Parliament would be infinitely richer for his presence if he can get there. But he's an independent, you see. And that makes his election as an independent councillor in the London borough of Kingston even more commendable. But he's also a commentator and a keen observer of British politics. And I wanted to talk to James Giles about the Boris Johnson affair I'm glad to say he joins me now. James, thank you uh, for uh, coming back on to the mother of all talk shows. Uh, you may have a different point of view, but tell me if you do. I found it an unedifying sight. Uh, I've been in these kangaroo courts before. Uh, when your political enemies are pretending to be a quasi-judicial uh, jury <laughs> to judge your uh, conduct, it never comes out all that nicely. What did you think of it? No, these committees never do, do they? I mean, we've had some particularly odd days in British politics since 2016. But today, from Boris Johnson's I'm innocent, uh, nothing to do with me, Gov, to Rishi Sunak's tax returns, to Steve Baker uh, describing Boris Johnson as a pound shop Nigel Farage, um, you know, there are days... Uh, that really do uh, produce the outcome of decades, as you said at the start of your show, and uh, this had to be one of them. Uh, we had a core of, you're quite right to say, I think, Boris Johnson's political enemies, uh, you know, probing him about his affairs. Boris Johnson, of course, being one of the great survivors in modern British politics. He seems to be uh, the man that can just come back and bounce back at any minute, and even... Today in The Guardian, there was speculation over whether he could return in the future 
as a potential leader of the opposition in the Conservatives. Now, after today, I'm not sure uh, that that is an all-likely uh, circumstance or, or scenario, rather. Boris Johnson saying, among, among other things, he felt that the lawful parties, as he described them, became unlawful after he left the events, which is why it wasn't obvious to him that the rules and guidance were broken. It emerged that he didn't take any advice from government lawyers, just his two media advisors, uh, Jack Doyle and uh, James Slack, uh, felt that socially undistanced farewell drinks uh, were within the guidance and that holding these events were, to quote him, essential uh, to the functioning of government. Now, all of these things in his defence are really quite so significant when we look at the purview of the committee. Uh, Boris Johnson has admitted already that he did mislead Parliament. But what the committee is looking at is whether he knowingly misled Parliament or whether he recklessly uh, misled Parliament. And one can argue the questions were framed in such a way to suggest the committee was minded at the very least uh, to suggest that he recklessly uh, misled Parliament. I don't think uh, his stance today, his approach to the committee did him any favours at all. Uh, almost, I think, all but certain now that the committee will decide that he, at the very least, recklessly misled MPs by repeating and relying on assurances uh, that the guidance hadn't been broken. Um, and the thing will be, I think, in Johnson's defence, whether anything he said today will do enough to persuade the MPs who ultimately well, decide what sanction he faces, middle name. Uh, if any, His entire uh, whether life the contributions he made or have any reckless, influence in major reckless to trail uh, of domestic and financial and even political uh, uh, disgrace left behind him. And yet, and yet, if you ask me, facing a wipeout, which they seem to be facing, with the utterly anonymous, dwarfish Rishi Sunak, an illegitimate premier, never been elected, no vote was cast in his favour, not even from Conservative members, because he had no opponent in the end, so entirely untested and entirely ineffective, it seems to me, in reversing the Conservative Party's collapse in the country, in the opinion polls, if you ask me, is there a single Conservative who can at least mitigate the electoral disaster they are facing, I'd have to say yes, it would be Boris Johnson because, and perhaps because of his persona, he is able to reach voters that other Conservatives can't reach. Do you agree? Uh, yes, he can. He is, uh, a, whether you love him or hate him, he is a remarkable politician in that he is even more Teflon, perhaps, than Tony Blair. Um, there are vast swathes of people in working-class constituencies who, prior to the 2019 general election, when Boris led the Conservatives to that landslide majority, had never voted Conservative in their life and ordinarily would never dream of doing so. And those people, a good chunk of them, would still vote for him again tomorrow. 
we had Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak uh, serving as Prime Minister in 2022. And when YouGov did a poll of who the best Prime Minister had been in 2022, the answer was overwhelmingly Boris Johnson, followed by don't know slash none of the above. Uh, Rishi Sunak isn't cutting through, and that's why we're seeing Labour leads in Labour leads in the polls of, in many cases, over twenty percent. Uh, he isn't cutting through, and why would he? You know, the man today talk about burying bad news. Chose the middle of Boris's hearing to release his tax uh, returns, which showed that in twenty nineteen to twenty twenty, he paid over two hundred million in tax. In 2020-21, he paid over $300 million in tax. And in the last tax year, he paid over £430 million in tax. This man is not relatable to the working classes. He is not relatable to the people that he needs if he wants to build a winning coalition come the next general election. Now, my prediction is, given that he simply cannot cut through to those people, is that he will cling on to power for dear life, and we probably won't be going to the polls in this country until January of 2025. Now, lastly, James, uh, what can this committee do to Boris Johnson? What's the, what's the, the range of penalties they can impose? Uh, and does the House of Commons itself have to endorse their findings? Well, look, it's important to say that Boris Johnson's already admitted to misleading the House, which is in itself a breach of the ministerial code. But of course, he is no longer a minister, and that falls outside of the remit of the committee that is investigating him. What the committee is looking at is whether he either recklessly or knowingly uh, misled Parliament. Now, the case that Johnson uh, willfully or recklessly misled MPs uh, looks to be that he saw some of the events with his own eyes. He admitted that today, uh, that he ignored social distancing. Again, he, he partially admitted that today uh, and relied on assurances from his media advisors, his spin doctors, as opposed to any government lawyers uh, to confirm that no rules had been broken. And so I think most reasonable people could draw the conclusion that there may have been some recklessness there. But that, again, as you say, is Boris Johnson. So the committee can recommend a suspension from the House. Uh, and if that suspension is for more than 10 working days or two weeks, then a recall petition could be triggered, which would force a by-election in Boris Johnson's constituency. Now, that isn't up to the Standards Committee. The Standards Committee will recommend a penalty uh, if they find Boris Johnson guilty of uh, recklessly or knowingly misleading the House. And it will be up to the MPs in the House of Commons to vote uh, whether to approve that sanction, propose a different sanction, or to let him off scot-free with no uh, punishment at all. Now, the issue I think that we'll find when the committee does report back, my own view, they will find him guilty of at least recklessly misleading the House. But it's whether the defence that Boris has submitted, be it his written defence or be it his oral testimony today to the committee, has done anything to persuade MPs 
to minimize the sanctions against him and most crucially, minimize those sanctions to beneath 10 working days to stop the risk of a by-election taking place, which he almost certainly would lose. James Giles, as always, thank you for your wisdom in One So Young. A great, great tour of the House of Commons proceedings uh, today. Uh, Lance is on the line in Canada on the Chinese deal. Let's hear from Lance. Go ahead, Lance. I guess my question is, like, it's obvious if the Chinese, if, if Ukraine accepts peace, Chinese investment will flood in. Resources and all kinds of things will flood in from Central Asia. You know, Ukraine will do well. Um, but for, by the other side, the U.S. won't do well on those resource deals. So what what deal could actually bring these people to peace? And, and like, you're, you've been in Europe. I haven't recently. Um, what do what is your feel on the European people? Like, do they want to march to Ukraine and, you know, start shooting Russians? <laughs> Absolutely like, not. Absolutely not. Not in any European country. The high point of uh, Ukraine mania passed at least in the spring of last year, maybe the early summer. Since then, it's been all downhill for the Ukraine maniacs. The flags have come down, the twibbons have come down, the buildings lit up in the blue and yellow uh, have, uh, have, have dimmed. Uh, the, uh, nobody does an opinion poll on it because they wouldn't like the result. But as it got colder, as the economy of Europe sunk further and further, enthusiasm for further largesse, still less uh, sending your son to the front to determine which side of a line Kupiansk uh, is on uh, was uh, vanishingly small. Uh, and so absolutely not is the answer. I think that's also true amongst Ukrainian public opinion. Uh, again, another reason why it's never brought to you. Ukrainian public opinion, if asked uh, to accept the Chinese peace deal and a negotiated end uh, to this conflict, I think would grab it with both hands. The question, Lance, is, is Zelensky uh, free to negotiate? Is he free to make a deal? The indications earlier this week from Washington are that he is not. What's your own view? Last word to you. I don't, it doesn't seem like Zelensky and Reznikov and Mikhail are free to make deals. And, uh, you know, and when it comes to you, you also said something about, you know, Donald Trump saying that, and, and he has said that he would end the war in Ukraine. But at the same time, I'll use a George Galloway expression. His recent speeches are so hot against China. Is this not just two cheeks of the same arse, too? Trump? Yeah, uh, Trump, that's why uh, I said uh, earlier in, in, in my, yeah, that's why I said earlier in my uh, monologue that uh, Trump is different from the others on the Ukraine. Maybe he just wants to fight one of Russia or China rather than fight both of them at the same time. His rhetoric against China is truly horrific, pornographic. 
Uh, but uh, one thing at a time, Lance, if the American people listen to him over Ukraine, let's hope that that brings about American disengagement uh, from this conflict. Because it's clear now that without the American driver, uh, this conflict would be settled. The European public would like it to be settled. I believe the Ukrainian public would like it to be settled. It will only be settled on, on two bases, it seems to me. One is that the Russian-speaking people in Ukraine leave the Ukrainian state, and many of those have already been liberated by the Russian invasion uh, and are not going back. And the second is an absolute guarantee that not only will Ukraine not join NATO, but NATO will not be in Ukraine. Because Ukraine isn't in NATO, but, you, but NATO is definitely in Ukraine. And uh, it would have to be a copper-bottomed guarantee that that would cease. But on that basis, we'd have an end to a war that is killing hundreds of killing and wounding hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians and destroying their economy and their infrastructure. Wouldn't that be a deal worth making? And by the way, it's actually a deal that could have been done when Boris Johnson went there to wreck it. Uh, Lance in Canada, thank you uh, for that uh, call. Uh, YouTube comments, crazy madman. Let's see what the madman says. Gigi, I've been looking forward to your live broadcast in China. Hooray! Three cheers for Gigi and Moats. Thank you so much. Morn's Lad uh, on YouTube says, China has historically suffered the loss of far more of its people at the hands of repeated Japanese occupations than in conflicts with any other nation. You know, the Soviet people lost the greatest number of people in the Second World War. Guess who the second biggest loss was? The people of China. And sadly, not a lot of people know that. China lost 20 million people in the Japanese invasion and occupation of their country. And now we're enlisting Japan as part of a threatening alliance against China. How do you think that makes people in China feel? Let's uh, go back to the phones. In Orange County is David. Wants to talk about the orange man, Donald Trump. Go ahead, David. <clears throat> how you doing, George? How, how you doing, man? I, I, I love talking to you. I love your show. You're doing the whole planet a great service. <laughs> now... Thank Here's you. Thank say. you, Donald. <laughs> Here's what I got to say about this whole situation with Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump, when he got elected, remember, he was not a politician. He didn't know the game. Sure. He wasn't a he wasn't a politician. He was learning on the fly. Now, if he ever gets reelected, he knows where all the bones are buried, and he's a very, very vindictive individual. They're scared to death of him right now. He can't get elected to the point 
where I feel like his life might be in danger because what I'm thinking the next step is once he gets done with this Pinocchio gate little thing he got going in the court, uh, he's going to be the front runner. They're not going to know what to do with him. They're scared to death of him. So what they're going to end up having to do to him, and I don't like Donald Trump, but I hate to see this happen to him. The yeah, uh, and uh, uh, look, look at the extent, David, look at the extent to which the United States is reduced. That you and I are having a serious discussion on a global television program about whether the last president and probably the next president is going to be jailed or murdered. That being the only two ways in which the political class of both parties can stop him coming back to power. That's pretty damning and pretty telling, isn't it? Yeah, exactly it is. And you know what? I think... I'm saying this right now so it don't happen. Uh, The Mossad and the CIA is going to murder Trump and blame it on the Iranians to get a a war with the Iranians going for for, uh, Israel. Well, God forbid. But if there's a war with the Iranians now, it will also involve Saudi Arabia, thanks to China's peacemaking uh, uh, achievements. David in Orange County, thank you for that. Uh, Super Chats are now flooding in. Thank you very much for that. Michael Horstman sends $4.99. Incredible show in Beijing, GG. Thank you, Michael. Alexander Lumsden, wow, sends £19.99. Great to hear the whole process of democracy explained. Yeah, I'll do more of that in my speech tomorrow. Uh, which I hope we'll be able to show uh, on uh, the moats in a future occasion. Kanda Strike sends Canadian dollars $6.99. Hello and best regards. Thank you to all our friends in Canada. Harry Harrison sends 10 British pounds. In order to have peace, all of the adversaries must be involved. NATO and the USA are conspicuous by their absence in the peace process. They're too busy preparing for war, Harry. And Jorge Ruiz sends $1.99. Moat Beijing in the future? Question mark. God bless Mr. Galloway. Chance would be a fine thing. I'd move here in a minute. All my children already speak Chinese. A cam 35 millimeters sends five US dollars. Just in case you're short on the plane fare back to the UK. Thank you. I'll be back for the show on Sunday. Back to the lines. Zion is in Costa Rica and wanting to talk about China. How about that for a global university of the airwaves? Go ahead, Zion. Thank you very much, Mr. Galloway, and congratulations on your tremendous achievements and what you've managed to achieve on moats and the, uh, the audience that you've gathered. Thank you. 
Uh, I listen to you quite regularly Thank and you, uh, have known about you for quite some time. Thank you very much, sir. My question is this. I'm concerned about Thank what you. I hear, I suppose mostly in the Western media and on social media, about the social credit system that I've heard China is implementing. And although I'm a great admirer and respecter of the Chinese culture and the achievements which you've uh, uh, enumbrated in your, in your monologue and with your guests that China has, has managed, However, there seems to be a movement towards uh, progress, if I could put it that way, economic progress, through control of the people. One of the, an example of that being the social credit system. Also, I, I, I saw many examples of severe lockdowns through the so-called pandemic in China. Uh, I don't know whether they were true or not, but I seem to have seen people being locked in their houses, deprived of food, deprived of liberty. And while it's well and good to give China credit for all its achievements, for its amazing culture, its cultural contribution, its amazing people, should we not be cautious in applauding a country which has apparently treated its citizens in such ways and is going towards a more dictatorial system in spite of the achievements which you have referred to? Thank you. Well, uh, it's a very fine call, Zion. I, I thank you for it. Uh, it's a legitimate point of view. It's one that I don't share uh, myself. And, of course, nobody's asking you or anyone else to applaud it. Because at the end of the day, insofar as there's a social credit system in China, that's a matter for China. Uh, Self-evidently, if the Chinese people didn't like it, uh, they would uh, be showing in variety of ways, not least through the whole process democracy that we talked about earlier, uh, that they didn't agree with it, that they disapproved it. If they didn't want to participate in it, they wouldn't. The Chinese people are a risen people. They're no longer on their knees in front of any occupier, uh, whether foreign or domestic. So insofar as there is the kind of system you refer to. Uh, it's with the consent and the cooperation of the Chinese people, and that is their sovereign right. You see, China's not telling us that we should have a social credit system, and I personally don't want one. And if my government, that I wouldn't trust to go out and buy a loaf without stealing my money and running off without giving me the bread... I wouldn't trust them uh, with a social credit system uh, in a month of Sundays. But luckily, China's not asking us to. China's not dictating to anybody else. And that is a big difference from other big powers, like my own, which ruled 25% of the globe and 33% of the people on the earth, China doesn't want to rule anybody else, doesn't want to give orders to anybody else, and will not accept other people giving orders to it. Now, I think we should respect that. As to their handling of, uh, of uh, COVID, uh, of course, there's a lot of propaganda around against China on the COVID question, and it's a big question. We've only got 13 minutes left on the show. What I will tell you is this. I'm wandering around the capital of China now 
in the streets, in the malls, in the restaurants, in the hotels, with far less hassle about COVID uh, than I uh, experienced at home. So whatever was the Chinese uh, handling of COVID, and they seemed to get away with far better outcomes than we did with our policies, it's very different now. Very, very different. There's nobody in this studio wearing a mask. Nobody I passed on the way into this studio wearing a mask, still less a hazmat suit. So beware of anti-Chinese propaganda is, I suppose, what I'm saying. But Zion, very good call. Uh, and greetings to the people in Costa Rica. It used to be the only uh, country, I think, in the world that didn't have an army, if I remember rightly. We used to go there briefly from Nicaragua back in the 1980s. A nice, beautiful, peaceful place, Costa Rica. And uh, I'm sure you're enjoying it there. Uh, YouTube chat comments, peace soup. Check out the old summer palace. The Brits burnt it down during the Opium Wars. I have in the past uh, checked that down and they've left it as a ruin to remind people of what British colonialism did to them. Some humility from the British with relation to China is very, very much in order. The shame of the Opium Wars and the unequal treaties imposed on China at the end of those opium wars ought to still burn in British consciousness, but unfortunately does not. Uh, Brian Holden says, on the 1st of June, 1964, Comandante Fidel Castro denounced for the first time the United States bacteriological war against the country. Indeed so, Brian, and not just against the country, but against him personally. The United States tried, you know, I'm a biographer of Fidel Castro. My Fidel Castro handbook is my best-selling book. Uh, they tried hundreds of times to murder Fidel Castro, including bacteriological weapons in his wetsuit, his rubber uh, swim diving suit, and even in his cigar. Uh, Bigfoot sends 10 pounds. Thank you, George, for everything you do, and welcome to China. I'll be there to be your local guide. Enjoy your time down there, and I hope my fellow Chinese people show you respect and love. They certainly have Bigfoot, and I'm forever grateful to them for allowing us to host the mother of all talk shows, from this wonderful studio in Beijing this evening. Wayne Dafter sends 10 Australian dollars. Brilliant program as usual. Thank you, George. Thank you, Wayne. And Zach Boyles sends $4.99 for the Galloway Media Empire. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Last call, I suspect, given the hour, it is from Mick in Notting Hill. Go ahead, Mick. Yeah, well, I just wanted to say uh, I, I watched your uh, interview with Neil Oliver. My, my oh, yeah. God, it was fantastic. And, and Neil was 
astounded by some of the knowledge you told us. So some of the questions, I, mean, I could even see Neil's face go red when you, you explained certain things to him. Like, he, he, he couldn't understand, and, and I couldn't understand, but about politicians and why, you know, there's no Labour, there's no Conservative anymore, there's no this, no that. And, mm. and I've watched that, that hour, it's about an hour, <clears throat> and I recommend anyone who's listening to this to watch that because I, that's I love very kind of you film. Mick it is, uh, it is actually on uh, I'll let you back in in a minute uh, Mick is referring to an interview I did with the Coast guy on Twitter Neil Oliver of GB News we did it on his podcast so we could have a longer form uh, talk I so respect Neil Oliver I have many political differences with him and he with me uh, but we both are Scottish people who believe in keeping Britain together. So we share that opposition to separatism, which is looking less and less likely as the separatist party literally implodes in front of our eyes and some of its leaders will be lucky to stay out of prison at the end of this implosion. Uh, but I wasn't sure what else we agreed on. Uh, but I'm more sure now that we share the view, Mick, that the Britain we had was better than the Britain we now have, and that we will have to act smartly if we're going to save ourselves. We are existentially threatened, not just by separatism, but by the degradation, uh, present, visible, touchable, palpable in our society uh, on all kinds of levels. The level of crime, for example. Uh, I had to leave London because, by the grace of God, I have many children and I could not allow my children safely to uh, be outside in London. Uh, even in Notting Hill, where you are calling from, two of my children lived in Notting Hill, Mick. Uh, but when they got to the age where the possibility of being robbed or even harmed seriously for the shoes they had on their feet or the baseball cap they had on their head, I had to move. We all had to leave London. It's no longer a safe place to live, no longer a good place to live, especially if you drive, no longer uh, a, a place... And I lived in London for more than 30 years and it is now unrecognizable uh, from the city it was when I moved there in uh, 1983. Uh, but not just London and not just crime, all kinds of things. We worry that our children are going to come home. I hate to say this, I hope I don't offend anyone, either here in China or uh, elsewhere around the world, but our children at primary school are being taught about masturbation in schools. This is completely unacceptable to me. And I think it's completely unacceptable to the great majority of parents in our country. People, children are being taken to drag shows and exposed to a man dressed 
in women's underwear in a way that we would never allow or imagine they would be exposed to a woman dressed in women's underwear. This gender mania in which our country is entrapped is, is dragging our country down, down the toilet. And the state of our public finances, the state of our public services, the disrespect to our working people are shown by our media, the railway workers, for example, the hatred, class hatred against the railway workers being displayed in the mainstream media because they stood up for themselves and won themselves uh, a wage increase uh, that was at least worth uh, fighting for. All these things and many more that I don't have time to deal with were amongst the issues that we talked about in that interview with Neil Oliver. I greatly respect Neil. He's an intellectual of the first rank, a man of the highest culture, far more learned man than me. I left school at 15. I never went to university. Anything I know, I learned myself later. I went to work in a factory straight from school. Neil, on the other hand, is a highly educated, highly cultured man who really cares about Britain, who's written about it, made television shows about it, in every line of which you can feel his love for our green and pleasant land. Last word to you, Mick, if you're still there. I'm sorry if I have lost you. I appear to have... Done so. Yeah, I'm still here, George. Are I'm you there, here, George? Mick? Last word. Last word to you. Last word to you, Mick. I was wondering if I was gone or not. But listen, yeah, you and Neil, you know, as a Londoner, I never thought I'd ever listen to two Scotch fellas together that made so much sense. And I love Neil because of certain things. I won't get political. And. Mate, you, you back in the 90s, uh, mate, I, I used to despise you, you know. But I couldn't understand. Uh, last night I listened on ITV News uh, to the presenters apologising for Iraq uh, 20 years later saying, well, uh, oh, there was no weapons of mass destruction. This is on mainstream media. And... And an Iraqi doctor standing on the spot where Saddam Hussein's statue was toppled and saying, why did you destroy our country? And, and back then I was like, you know, 20 years younger, obviously, and thinking it was a good thing. It was a terrible thing. I, I won't swear. A monstrosity thing. Monstrous. And, and now they're trying to do that in... Ukraine and, and bring us to a nuclear war. It drives me crazy, George. And I don't hear anything apart from... Well, I'll tell you what, Mick. I'll tell you what, Mick. I'll, I'll tell you what, Mick. What you just said uh, makes me feel sad and happy at the same time. Sad because uh, we failed to stop it, but happy that people are waking up all over our country and all over the world. They're seeing through the fog of war propaganda, seeing through the fog of falsification, 
seeing the outline at least of not just the truth but of a new a new future and i it's not you see i don't want to live in china i don't want to be chinese i want britain to be a better britain that's why i fight for it that's why i fought for brexit that's why i fought against scottish separatism it's why i'm the leader of the workers party of britain it's because i love the british people and i love our country i want it to be better and we can learn from the successes of other countries if we automatically define them as enemies then we'll never learn anything from them and we if we're not lucky we'll end up in conflict with them thanks mick that was an unexpected call and uh, that took an unexpected turn but i want to say to you how grateful i am that you've changed your mind about me and about the things that i stand for and speak for i'm genuinely sorry that that's the end of the show i would have liked to have spoken to our chinese guests for longer i would have liked to have had other chinese guests i would have liked to have stayed here a bit longer and taken the camera out onto the streets but none of that has been possible but i want to thank my friends here at chinese television for making this very special mother of all talk shows possible without them their camera crews their sound people their producers and directors we simply wouldn't there's selfies of the very crew right there and thanks of course to my normal british crew who are toiling away back home to bring you this pretty special mother of all talk shows god willing i'll be back on sunday morning at uh, the crack of dawn and i'll be on the air at 7 p.m. uk time with the mother ship the sunday mother of all talk shows nearly 1.3 million people watched us in the last week let's get to that 2 million can we you know it's my dearest wish so i can retire a happy man in a decade or so from now thanks for watching see you on sunday